0: It's a very important um, perspective to have as a manager, I think that your job is to make sure that the people who work for you have the best career that they can possibly have. And you have to take that really seriously.
1: Hello, you are listening to I Want Our Job, the podcast. I'm Paulina Salutin, and we are here to connect you to career paths, share life stories, and to help make connections that hopefully will inspire new ideas in your life. So today we're speaking with someone very passionate about user experience design. Mona Patel is the founder of user experience design and staffing agency, Motivate Design. And Mona's enthusiasm for mixing up psychology, creativity, engineering principles for solving design problems is fascinating. For example, in this show, we're going to talk about thinking through problems through the eyes of an object, like a mobile app, or say you're a school walker. This can help our brains access new perspectives on problems. So if you're interested in learning more about what user experience is like as a career path, how you get a job in user experience, or if you're interested in learning how Mona built Motivate Design into an Inc. 5000 company with 25 employees today, or if you're just interested in learning new methods to look at design problems differently in your career or life, we think you'll enjoy today's conversation with a very talented Mona Patel. Hi, Mona, welcome to our show. Thank you. Uh, we would love to hear all about a motivate design and your current job as founder and how it all happened
0: sure absolutely so motivate design is a user experience research design and staffing firm so what that basically means is that we work with fairly large organizations to help them understand how their customers are using their product or brand or service so we do a lot of research and a lot of kind of living in the lives of customers to get that insight And then what we can do about it to help make the experience that customers have better. Uh, The staffing arm builds out design teams in these large organizations as well. Wow. Okay. Yeah.
1: So so tell us, um, what was the timeline? When did you start Motivate Design? And how did you go from um, the idea to actually starting this business?
0: Okay. So um, I was... In a, in a way, I was very lucky because I've been in this space of user experience since I graduated from college. So my undergrad degree is in engineering and psychology. So it was all about how do you understand how people work and think and apply it to the design of products. And I worked as a researcher and a designer for a number of years, and then switched over to management and kind of building and managing teams to do this work. And then in two thousand nine, it was recession time, and I was managing a fairly large team, and um, there was an opportunity to, well, they were they asked me to lay some folks off, and I just felt like it would be better for me to leave. Uh, you know, I, was already, I already had the itch to do something different, but I wasn't quite sure what. So one day, I had the confidence, and I resigned, and then the next day, I freaked out, for sure. <laughs> what am I going to do, and how am I going to do this? Um, but I just, I had this Feeling, and this is fairly early in this in this field of user experience that we could use design to influence behavior. You know, not just make it easier for people to click on things on a website, but really understand how people worked and use design to influence things. Everything from you know eating healthier to um, providing resources for people to feel like a better mom to making doctors feel like they have all the information they need to take care of patients. And so, motivate design started in 2009. I was the first employee. Um, and I did not pay myself the first year, I just kept, or, or second year, or third year, really. Like it was, it was really tight. I kept investing back in the company to build it out. Um, and so it was two or three years before uh, I felt like it was you know, in a place where it could support a salary to me and also you know, to grow. And then since then, it's been kind of in this really awesome sweet spot of a, a small UX agency that's doing some really compelling work with some pretty awesome companies. Wonderful.
1: And so I like to ask the question of when did you make your first
0: hire? Um, it was very early on. Um, I teach at Parsons, the School of Design, and so one of my students uh, was on LinkedIn. I went in to actually find another person with her name, and I saw that she was working at like anthropology or something. And I looked at that, and I'm like, wow, she's such a great researcher, and she has so much potential in this field of UX, why is she working you know, at anth- or free people? And so I reached out to her to just check in and see how things were going, and she expressed some big frustration around getting a job in a recession, and I told her to come on and help me. You know, I was writing reports, and it was taking too long. I was pregnant at the time. And so I figured, you know, you do some of the stuff that uh, is kind of day-to-day busy work, and that frees me up to either have more balance or maybe just get more projects. And so it was about six months in I I hired the first person.
1: That's great. And so when you do these projects, then do you hire um, contractors? Or like tell us us about a typical project, how long it lasts, and how do you structure it?
0: So today we have about 25 full-time employees. So most of the work is done with employees, or we have some long-term contractors. But at the beginning, for sure, um, it was all contractors to start. Uh, until I hired this very first person and that was, you know, because I was scared to be really honest. It felt much more comfortable and easy to just have a contractor and not have to worry about payroll or worry about, you know, making sure that that person's benefits are are taken care of. Um, And then the switch happened because I started building a brand, you know, and I I wanted to have more control over how things were delivered and, you know, the order in which we did things um, and our way. And that's when I realized like you really have to have people who have bought into your brand to deliver on a brand. And and that's when I reluctantly switched over to having full-time employees. I'm really glad that we have it now, but at the time, it was super scary. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And now with 25 employees, I'm sure you're at a place where, where you're growing and that is no longer an issue. So are there any <laughs> growth, growth numbers you feel comfortable sharing or telling us about how your company is
0: you know, progressive. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we, we hit, uh, hit the ink 5,000 uh, two years in a row. So some of the growth numbers are in there. I think the first um, year was like 800%. The next year that we hit, that we, um, that we hit it was another like three or 400%. So the, yeah, it's been, it's been very fast. And in fact, um, I feel like it's my job to know when we're growing too fast or, and why we're growing. And so there have been times where I've pulled the reins and slowed growth down Uh, and gone the other way and said, no, I want to streamline, I want to bring it down tighter, Uh, I'm in one of those phases right now where I just feel like, and part of this is intuition um, and part of it is just good business sense looking at P&L, you know, being really careful to not just grow because it's fun or because, you know, you get a lot of attention for it, but grow, grow smart and pull reins back and make sure that the quality always stays high Um, and that's something that uh, has been, a challenge as we've gone through growth. It's you know, it definitely is up and down, up and down, and you have to be really cognizant of where you are, not just the not zooming out and seeing that eight hundred percent growth, but those are made up of micro up and down curves and you know just really, really staying on top of that. Absolutely. So tell us about your
1: clients or some walk us through a project that's really excited you um that kind of explains the kind of work that you do.
0: Yeah, um so there's one that we just closed um that was really fun. There's so many really great ones. Um, One is for a media company where they were looking to improve the customer's experience in engaging with this media company. Everything from the website at the very beginning where you learn about, you know, this is different kinds of internet speeds, different kind of TV options that I can have, phone, no phone, you know, learn about it, sign up for it, buy it, have people come on into your home and install it and then get serviced for it when things go wrong, so that entire life cycle we were looking at, we created this really awesome journey map for the customer's experience. What was really interesting about this project is where I think the field is going, which it also, so what we included is where the employees experience, the actual company's employees experience, needed to be optimized so that they could better serve their customers. Hmm. You know, a long time people have been looking at, how do I get more customers? How do I get more money out of customers? And I think right now, this is a really great example of a project where companies are figuring out, if I invest in my employees, if I give them the training and the resources, if I don't have so much attrition, that can also improve the customer's experience. So how do I do that? And so we've coined this EX instead of UX, employee experience, and this was one of our first projects, merging kind of user experience and employee experience together. So that one was really fun. Um, We had a series of projects going on with a major, um, like a, a restaurant chain. Every time they open in a new location, we go in and do research for them to figure out what are the things that they need to modify to be successful in that location. So it's not just kind of the region of the U.S., but also in that neighborhood, what is it that they need to know to to be successful during launch and and after. So that's our research team doing some really awesome work. And then our design team comes in after and uh, makes sense of all that research in these process flow diagrams and journey maps and persona sets that help the company really get the difference between a Las Vegas customer and a New York customer and an Atlanta customer.
1: That does sound so interesting. So can you give us a little peek into what kind of recommendations they might make? Is it how they design the site and the offer, like
0: the menu or what yeah, would it be? it's menu, store, and service. So all three are coming in. So for example, in New York, you know, there's no need for a drive-through, right? We don't have cars. And so here, what is it that takes the place of that? Um, and how uh, the tables turn a lot faster here. So is, are there things that we can do with the store design and even the, the material of the table that would make it more um, appropriate for the New York turn than something like Atlanta? The weather's very different as well. you know. And so what people order and how they order it um, Will make a big difference. There's sweetened tea in some places. There's unsweetened tea in other places. Uh, you know, there's a lot of ice in some places, not a lot of ice in others. So it's even to that level of detail, we're getting the insights to help the company understand. I'm going to need much more ice here, and I'm going to need it in this size because that's what just what makes a better experience for our customer. And all of that stuff is designed, right? And so it's just it's really fun to get in on that level um, and help companies understand these small little changes make a huge impact. To the experience, uh, to the customer experience.
1: Yeah, and do you uh, specialize in any industry, or are your clients
0: um, all across the board? Yeah, they're all across intentionally. I think. I think actually one of the things that we do really well is now take the thing that we just did for a fast food chain and apply it over to a B two B intranet. You know, and apply that over to a car service, uh, car dealership. Um, It allows us to see things um, because we're just in the space of creating a great user experience, not a great user experience for mobile or a great user experience in healthcare. Um, I do know that some of our competitors focus there. I just, you know, I can't even imagine it. I think it's just so great to have the breath and be able to apply and think about things differently each time you're on a different project.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That makes so much sense because I feel like a lot of the research is showing like the more you can bring in um, perspectives, right, from different types of industries, uh, the more creative you can be. Is that how you see it?
0: 100%. So, a sneak peek into something that we're working on um, this summer, we're launching six pilot summer sessions of something we're calling Youth Thex. It's uh, design thinking camps for kids, basically. And so it's two days where high schoolers are going to come in and solve a business problem. And again, if you think of it, it's just market research, right? Instead of having these kids come in and do a focus group, we're having them come in and um, tackle something like a smart appliance in a home or uh, a way to redesign crosswalk signs so that people actually listen to them. Huh. And so, yeah, it's, and again, it's it's a high school perspective, but it's exactly to your point, Polina, of, of giving people um, – insight into how someone else would solve their problem so that they can figure out how they want to solve their problem.
1: Absolutely, and so these are going to be, did you say two-day
0: camps? Yeah, they're two-day camps. I'm so excited about it. They're two-day camps, um, you know, nine to five. There's a place for the parents to play at drop-off and pick-up, but for the most part, we're teaching kids the ideation process. You know, how to understand what a problem is, ask what if, come up with lots of ideas, and then filter those down to a couple core ideas is day one. And then on day two, we ask them to tell us every reason why their idea is not gonna be successful, spend a little bit of time explaining the difference between a real reason and an excuse, which is usually what it is, and then get them back on track and teach them kind of the fundamentals of user experience. So they design, they, you know, do a little bit of research and then they refine and then they pitch it back to their parents this is the end of the second day.
1: Wonderful, and so you'll have
0: information on your website, right, about how to find. Yeah, this we're going to launch it uh, next week. Oh, cool! Awesome! I know. I'm so excited. I, I'm so excited, and this comes because we did some of these with kids, and the kids told us that they weren't creative, and that just, oh, that hurt. I hated hearing that. Um, you know, of course, a uh, middle school student should be should think that he or she is creative, and so I just feel like this is such a problem that kids feel this way. So at the very least, I want to offer them an opportunity to learn about, you know, what the ideation and design process is. But uh, at the at the best, on the best case level, I would love organizations to learn from high schoolers and say this is how they see your problem. Yeah, exactly, you know? right? You know, Cause, yeah.
1: <laughs> and tell me, so when you have projects, how long do they take? Are you in there for uh, a specified amount or... It, just- um,
0: it depends. Yeah, it depends. The research is usually four to six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time you figure out what we're testing, write out the materials, um, get it all set up, and then do the analysis and report. The design work is usually on retainer. And so we're there, you know, as a part of or a, an extension of the design team. Um, and so we're, you know, we can be working on that for a year or two years.
1: Got it. So when you look back since founding Motivate Design, are there um, lessons during your journey as a startup founder that, um, that that stand out that you could share with others?
0: Oh my gosh, so many. I'm wondering where to start. Um, let's see. So I would say lesson lesson one um, is definitely invest in in people who can do the part of the job that you're not good at doing <laughs> quickly. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. that I was a little too cheap early on. Um, and there were things like you know the entire operation side. I've definitely become better at it. But that whole side of um, sending invoices and knowing when we got paid and how we got paid and following up, I was awful at. So awful. And so well, I did it for a long time, but it was just so much smarter for me to hire somebody else who was better at it um, and focus on the things that, that I'm good at. Um, and so that that would definitely be lesson one is uh, early on, I think we we chicken out, you know, we look at the the cost of it and we say, oh my god, this is going to be, you know, an $80,000 person or a $60,000 person or a $200,000 person, whatever the number is um, and I don't have it or what if I don't have it and I think much better to reframe that to by getting this person, what can I do? How much more money can I make, you know, for this organization doing what I do best? Um, So that switch was really important. Uh, It happened quickly but not quick enough. I would say it took about a year for me to get there. I would say the second I think I just alluded to is the, the importance of an employee experience when you're small um, and you're trying to hire the best people out there you know they have jobs at some of the, the biggest brands like you know we actually convince somebody to come here instead of going to Google and another person come here instead of going to Facebook and so what is it that you're creating that makes this a better fit for their life um, it's a very it's in a very important. Um, perspective to have as a manager I think that your job is to make sure that the people who work for you have the best career that they can possibly have and you have to take that really seriously Um, and that was a big lesson for me is is that I'm constantly listening and constantly trying to figure out what else can I do for the people who work here uh, especially because my resources are limited to really make sure that they feel like they have the best job in the world.
1: No, that's excellent advice. And, you know, speaking about user experience as a career, so if somebody's listening and they just love to know what, what is user experience, what is the career path into
0: it? And what is my life going to be like if I decide to pursue this as a career? You know, so there's some really great boot camps that have come out recently. Um, New York code and design Academy, we just worked on the curriculum for them and it's like an eight week intensive. Uh, there's a part-time and a full-time I think. Um, for people to get the basics of user experience because there's a couple things that you need to learn. You need to learn how to do really great research up front and different versions of that depending on your budget and your time. There's the principles of good design and right now I'm just talking about digital, so you know what makes a good mobile app, what makes a good website, uh, what are the, the things that um, you the the standards that you should not break and the standards that are fun to break. And so there's a a large part of time there. And then how do you continuously improve the things that you're creating so that they're, they're in more and more alignment with what people want and need. And so that eight weeks kind of covers content like that. There's a bunch of books as well and a bunch of online resources. I think there might even be some online classes, um, That you can take. I I remember hearing about one or two that are like very, very basic. Um, But really, the the key to getting into this space is having a good portfolio and having um, examples in there to show. This is the before, you know, and then here's what I saw as the user experience problem, and here's my after. Here's my redesign. And even if you have to do those for free for things that you don't get paid for, I, I think it's almost impossible to get a job in this space without a portfolio. And so really making sure that you can showcase the way you think and the value that you can provide. Great advice. And
1: if you were, would you be able to say like what talents kind of capabilities or personality traits would make someone a great UX designer?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So on the research side, um, you know, the most inquisitive person, the, the, the person who loves people and lo- and loves to understand and have a lot of empathy for people, I think those are the best researchers. You know, they're very good at being able to put themselves in the customer's shoes, uh, making it a safe place for customers to tell you the things that work or don't work for them, Um, really not applying their own history to what they hear, but hearing truth and being objective. Those are all really great characteristics of researchers. On the design side, I think... Um, process-oriented people and creative people. You have to be able to use both the analytical and the creative in coming up with storyboards and design concepts. So, you know, can they figure out the things that are most important? Um, Can they put those on paper? And then are they willing to take the risk to try something different and try something new? I think that that second part is what differentiates a good designer from a great designer. Mm -hmm. You know, one that doesn't start from, well, here's how every other website does it, so I'll just do it like that, Uh, and more into, I've thought about this problem. And this has never been done before and it's a little crazy, but I wanted to show you where I am in my thinking. Those are my favorite designers.
1: Got it. And what is the career path? So let's say you start as a user experience designer, then do you go, go on to a senior role and then just become, you know, just more and more skilled at what you do?
0: Yeah. So basically, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, a lot of times people will look for more and more variety. And so, you know, if I've been doing UX design for mobile apps, maybe I want to switch over and do something on wearables, or maybe I want to go work at a hospital and do service design. And so they they take their skill and apply it in different contexts as they go more and more senior. Um, There is a separate, I would say, offshoot track for management, you know, where you can get into account management and leading teams. That's not always the right decision. And, um, and, And because of UX hires, our staffing arm, I know... That It's not even that you're always going to make more money doing that. I think that's a misconception. A lot of times people feel like managers, you know, by going into a management track, you make more money. I think it's important to want to manage, you know, if you want to go into the management track because I know many, many senior UX people who make more than I made as a manager Mm -hmm. uh, because they're just really good at doing the thing and a lot of people just want to hire them
1: and they might not enjoy management right if they're very mm-hmm. cra- great
0: <laughs> exactly exactly have yeah. so many people who are managers who hate management and so imagine being managed by that person it's awful oh,
1: hey, hey. I know. um so i read i read the article you wrote in forbes about creative potential being a muscle that can be trained and can you talk to us about this about this theory and ways that we can train ourselves for people aren't purely creative type roles
0: Oh my gosh! I've seen it firsthand. It's it's one of my favorite things that I've been doing in the past couple um, past couple years. So you know, our our method is like kind of boil this down, make it as simple as possible. So a lot of times, what we're doing is we're asking people to ask as many "what if" questions as they can. So. Uh, I'm working on a children's book. It's an elephant that redesigns a swing, and her what if questions are, you know, what if the the temperature on the seat was regulated, or what if the swing could go up and down instead of, you know, uh, um, or like literally up and down rather than swing? Would that be, more, you know, more fun? Or what if it could be so big that it could hold an elephant? Right. These what if questions are designed to help you start thinking of different ways to solve the problem. And what we've seen in terms of this muscle is at the very beginning, anytime I'm working with a group for the very first time, they don't have that many what-if questions. You know, they have maybe one or two in a three-minute round each. Uh, There's some people who have zero. They're like, I have no idea how I'd redesign a swing, and I I just can't think of anything. Um, And as we work with them to understand, to help them understand that, the reason they didn't come up with things is not because there's no ideas in the world; that don't exist. It's that they're they're getting in their own way. They start getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And by the end, like we just did around on Friday here to name the camps, and uh, I got the post it stack back from the couple rounds of, of that we had, and there's over a hundred. Whoa. You know, so you can you just see this huge difference between people who have never tapped into this muscle and people who have been doing it so often that it's just so easy for them to come up with ideas. I mean, it, literally, like we were talking about having kids. I remember doing my first push up after having my second kid, and I had no idea where this muscle was to like even try <laughs> to push my body up, like where my abs were. No idea. And then you get stronger, and you get stronger and stronger and stronger. The more you go to the gym, and the more you commit to making this a better and stronger part of your your body it's the same thing with creativity and so you know these days it's very hard for me to feel stuck because I know how to get unstuck and you know one of the things that people always say is that there's there's a million ideas out there then people wouldn't feel stuck but if you talk to people there's something in their life usually there's a part of their life where they feel like I'm not getting what I want to get out of it and taking them through this what-if activity really helps them to start building the muscle so that they can they can start trying
1: got it and so you run workshops for creativity so so you, what if is one of the thing that the the tools you use right are there any other ones that you could share
0: yeah yes absolutely it's all in the book uh, the book is reframe um it's kind of eight steps that come uh, that come together to take you from a problem to a creative opportunity but another one that one of my favorites early on is something called empathy. so Empathy maps are something that we've always done in the UX space to get our head around what is the user feel when they're interacting with a product. So what do they see? What do they hear? What do they feel? What are the things that they want to get? That's stuff in an empathy map. A problem empathy map is looking at the problem from the perspective of an inanimate object to really understand what are some things that would help me disrupt this space. So you know, if you're thinking of it like um, if you're an app on a, a on an iPhone. You know, I want to be used by my, my owner, but she forgets that I'm here or I'm trying to be helpful, but my notifications, my notifications just annoy her. Or I wish she would move me to the front of the screen and, and use me instead of Uber, but I'm hot pink and they don't want a hot pink, you know, the the guys don't want a hot pink icon. <laughs> so it's like, it's really getting and looking at it from and an app's perspective to start thinking about, well, what are the things that we could change? What are the problems, actually, in you know, the interactions here? And so that's something that we've done when we're doing these workshops. And one of my favorite was we were disrupting bullying. So in schools, how can we get people to be nicer to one another and not bully? And we took the perspective of a locker in the hallway. And you know what are the things that a locker sees when it comes to bullying? that could help us solve the problem that exists in schools. And so it really can be used for something as light as like redesigning the thumbnail for an app uh, all the way through to social problems.
1: Interesting, do you remember anything that came up during the bullying exercise? The bullying one, yeah, like
0: I wish I could uh, record what was happening so there was an accurate um, read but there's no money for recording. Mm-hmm. Or I wish um, I could give, come out and give this person a hug after she's just been bullied but there's no way for her to feel supported. Or I wish I could tell a teacher or ring an alarm when something is happening, but I have no resources. And so, you know, the, it's not that we're redesigning a locker, but we're looking at what are the things that we could do? I mean, would there be less bullying if there were videos, you know, video cameras in schools? You know, what if you could ring an alarm and get help mm-hmm. somehow? You know, and so uh, what if there could be a secret sign that would let somebody else know that you're in an uncomfortable situation right now? And no. so all of those things came out of, the, out of doing the problem with the first.
1: No, I love that. Just looking at different ways at problems, that's uh, that's really interesting. So how about um, a day in your life? So founder of this big successful company, what is a day in your life like?
0: Oh my gosh, it's crazy. It is crazy. And um, I think they, they kind of fall into like two or three day types. So there's one day type, which is like back-to-back calls all day. And I'm I'm literally like stuck in a room. Sometimes I say, and babies in the corner, like just stuck in this room. And it's just you know, client, potential client, uh, internal meeting, another potential client, a partner, uh, like something like this, a podcast. So it's very much, um, getting as many touch points as I can and have helping as many people as I can in the most efficient way possible. So that's definitely one day type where like, like today I show up in comfortable shoes, hair in a bun, and it's all about like working, <laughs> like getting my head down. There's another day type, I think, which is, um, getting out there more, um, and you know those are days where I might like put makeup on (laughs) and get on a stage and you know there's some rehearsing before there's a lot of nerves I still get nervous when I get on stage um but it's about sharing information you know and it's about um helping people understand who we are what we stand for and getting them to buy into some of these crazy things that we're doing like design camps and, and the children's book and so on um and then a third day I think is um You know, I'm very, like, I do go, like, to the full extreme and then not. No calls, no meetings, just me on our orange couch um, connecting with the people that work here. And so I'm here mainly to support them. I'm looking at their design work. I'm working on an article. You know, it's very much, like, geeking out. um, And I need those. I'm an introvert naturally. So those days restore me and help me feel, like, connected to the actual field that we're in and not just, you know, the, the boss lady
1: that's great. So, do you block out days to do that mm-hmm. type of work?
0: That's- yeah, yeah. So, next week, for example, I have three days blocked out uh, in a row, which is uh, you know, it's maybe the second or third time that I've done that. Um, but I get a lot of work done when you know it's it's just about what I want to do, and I don't owe anybody my time.
1: Yeah, very good. And what about any other um, tips, philosophies of how
0: you allocate your time and prioritize? I have. I actually put everything in my calendar, and it like down to like a crazy science. So everything from my workouts to time with my kids and their, you know, um, like recitals or teacher meetings, everything, I don't I don't even shade it. It's all one level, all on my calendar and everything has to go on that calendar. You know, my physical therapy for this hip thing that I've been dealing with everything is on that calendar and that way I know um where I need to be and what percentage of, of my day, my week, my month I'm spending on different kinds of things. I also include block time. So, like, for example, Thursday, there's just this huge block from 12 to 4 where no one's allowed to schedule anything, and that's just for me. And so even, like, my me time is blocked off on my calendar. Mm -hmm.
1: And so tell us about Work-Life Balance because you do have two young kids, and just um, to inspire other women that, hey, look, you're doing it, and uh, you're a busy mom.
0: That's funny because we we have our common friend Rachel, and this um, this was the advice that I gave her. Uh, I actually think kids are... The best driver for doing work, like you know, like I just like I I remember the way I worked before I had kids and I was always efficient and I was always very driven and I, I doubt anyone would ever say that I was a, I was not a hard worker but after I had kids like it, I'm at a whole other level you know if I the way I think about it is I play with my kids in the morning what I do for the rest of the day has to be so great that it's worth leaving my kids. You know, and so that day, this is why I have such optimized days. Like I am in it to win, I'm in it to get as much as I can out of the day, help as many people as I can, and then at five o'clock or usually at the latest, sometimes at two thirty, I'm done. You know, I've given what I need to give. I've I've been hyper efficient, and now it's my time to go back to my kids. And I don't take my phone out of my bag when I'm playing with my kids. You know, I'm there, I'm present, I'm doing what I need to do with them. I'll go to the gym again, no phone out. Kids aren't there, work's not there. That's all about me. And so I, I'm just I think I'm I've become really good at like the thing that I'm doing. Just do it really well because there's a lot of other things that I could be doing. I don't want to think about that. I just want to focus on the what I've decided to do and make sure I'm squeezing all the value that I can out of the, the time I've allocated for it. Absolutely. It's just like an engineering way to look at it, but it just has worked so well for me.
1: Yeah, and that's great that you you, you turn your phone off. You don't check it when you're with your kids, no. when you're at the gym. That's wonderful. I really applaud you for that, and I completely agree with what you said. And curious, I didn't ask you, so tell us about your early influences and in family and when you decided to, to take user experience to pursue that path as a career.
0: Oh my gosh. So I have always been interested in psychology, um, always, like I'm just fascinated with why people do what they do uh, and I knew I wanted to do that, but I am of Indian descent and my dad would have probably like strangled me, I think, if I came back and said I want to be a psychologist and maybe teach psychology and so I had to anchor it somehow. <laughs> and. I found this degree called engineering psychology and that's what I was saying partially it was all luck because I would have never called myself a designer which is the most ridiculous thing to say now right in my career but at that time I didn't have the confidence to say I'm a, I'm a great designer um, and the engineering part the UX part really built up my my confidence and my creativity that I could problem solve and think of different ways of, of doing what I do and so Kind of graduating with that degree in engineering helps, you know, everyone in my in my old school family feel okay about what I was doing. But then when I talked to them about the kinds of problems that I was getting to solve, that's when it made it concrete. You know, some of my first projects were like redesigning the vitals monitor in a in a hospital so that nurses could walk by and know the vitals of a patient without having to disturb them and turn on their lights, or the first digital camera and the exact weight. That we were going to make it so that it wasn't too light. People felt it was cheap, but it wasn't so heavy that people wouldn't take it with them when they traveled. And so these, like, I was able to kind of point to concrete examples of what I did, and that's I think when I got the support from people because they saw the problems that I was solving in the world, um, and I could relate it back to to the things that they've struggled with. You know, anything from elevator buttons to websites. Um, my brother's always been a huge fan of mine as well. I mean, I think that he um, he always knew I was creative. He's younger. Uh, and so I think, you know, he's always been one of the people that has been really supportive of of me taking chances and trying crazy new things. Um, and I'm glad I've, I've had him in my corner. He's He's like a best friend and a brother all in one. That's
1: wonderful. And those examples of projects you've had, that is so fascinating. And how much do you think the engineering degree helped you be able to tackle those kinds
0: of projects? Huge, huge Um, because what the engineering degree taught me is how to build you know, that how hard it is to build firstly, but how many things you have to think about when you're building something, so you know, you can't just go out and talk to users and they say, I want this crazy feature, you know that's fine and that's great and that's good to know from the user experience perspective but when you actually have to build that feature you have so much more that you have to think about, and so I think it, it just grounded me uh, in a great way around process and structure and, you know, phase one and phase two and phase three and how you, how you layer on different feature sets so that you can actually build a real product and launch it. Um, and so it was really, really helpful to have that background. Uh, I think it still helps now. I mean, everything from my schedule to, uh, the way I approach running this company, the fact that I'm, you know, building it and designing it all, all also is anchored in that engineering degree.
1: Got it. And so do you think for people who just go through a boot camp, um, that would be enough to really be great designers, um, or like for your children, for example, let's say they wanted to follow your path. Would you also recommend they take those kinds of, uh, foundational engineering courses?
0: Uh, Yeah, I think, you know, courses are one of those things where, um, they give you confidence, you know, they, they definitely give you a book of knowledge, but you can learn that by reading six books as well, I would argue, right? So if I, so, so, somebody who didn't have the resources, I would never want to say take this expensive boot camp and that's the only way you can get in. Uh, you know, I might say watch all of these webinars and read all of these books and you'll get it because it's a switch that you're, you're turning on in people of I need to, you know, do research this way, I need to design this way. And there's so many ways to do it. I would say do the way that is um, – you know, pick the way that is accessible to you, you know, whether it's the money, the time, the resources, your level of confidence, pick the thing that's going to give you the confidence to then go out and get the job that you want, because you're going to learn it on the job. You know, all the stuff that I learned in school was incredibly valuable. I went to a great school, but I had to really, really figure things out at my first internship and at my first job. That's when it was all about the application and everything I learned in school was helpful, but I had to know how to find the answers. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, great advice. And as, as, as education is changing, like, you know, soon there'll be, I think it'll be an immersion between online and on-site, and uh, it'll become less, the cost will become less prohibitive. And like you said, um, if, if the resources are out there, like, for example, someone like you were to say, here's the books I recommend, I think that would be such a valuable resource to others. Um,
0: I absolutely agree. I think um, one of the things that I did early on, and it did help with my business, to be really honest. So I didn't do it for that. Is I created a list of, and it's still on my LinkedIn. You know, the books that I love and the resources that I think are great, and that kind of giving is so it's so helpful to people. I should update that now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, so you're giving me a to do list. Yeah, I, I
1: would love <laughs> to see that, and we would love to link to that in the show notes for this for our. Awesome. News. Okay.
0: Great. All right.
1: And so okay before we as we wrap down um what about where do you go for inspiration how do you bring in new um ideas into your life because I mean two kids the business you're so busy <laughs>
0: no it's full it's definitely not busy it's full uh-huh. i like to say it's full like i feel really fulfilled by everything that i'm doing um the busy the busy sometimes some days i feel it and then i i really try to assess where is that coming from and if you don't want to do it don't do it you know <laughs> and, yeah. like get myself out of it um okay so inspiration I would say the thing that's most new in my life is running a company, right? That That's the thing that I haven't done it before and so most of my resources are in that space. Um, I have like a, a peer advisory group that I go to once a, a month um, and it's uh, seven CEOs all kind of helping each other uh, under, uh, kind of get updates on where you stand in your, in your business and helping each other improve. So that's really great. Um, there's a lot of Design-oriented meetups and um, opportunities, either for me to speak or join, and I love that. I just love being around people who are constantly creating, and so I definitely get inspiration there. Um, I really also love like some of the smaller women in tech or women in design um, groups that I'm a part of. You know, we're all sometimes struggling with the same thing uh, when it comes to having kids, or um, you know, even. Salary inequity and kind of managing that for us to look at it and say, are we doing it, or you know, how can we improve that? And so that's also been something that is really important to me that I've been more and more active in when I can. Got it.
1: And are there other causes
0: that where you'd want to be more involved? Um, I think so. The design, uh, the design thinking labs or camp for kids is definitely something that I'm I'm super passionate about. I think. I might start. I might be starting to annoy people with the, With how excited I am. With
1: I you. love their passion behind that. And tell us so that really. So you had this kind of workshop, right? And you got very involved because it was sad to you that kids didn't think that they were creative.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, I just, I just got pissed. I'll be really honest. You know, when I told them to draw each other, and half of them put their pen down. Like, we don't know how to draw. We're not. I'm not a good drawer. I'm not creative. And so then I stopped it, and I said, wait, how many of you feel like you're creative? And, like, three people raised their hand out of 20.
1: And what was the age? And that just, and was the, the ages? Ages, ages were 8 to 12. Got it. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's just ridiculous. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Of course kids are creative, and what are we teaching them? So that's a huge passion area of mine, just kids and um, making sure that they have, you know, an environment where they can choose to become a designer if they want to. Um, and so that that's huge for me. Um I'm definitely involved in a lot of, you know, women women owned, empowering girls, empowering women, um, kinds of things. Um, just again, coming from a, a minority background, I think it's really important to support uh, women and make sure that they feel like they have mentors and resources that they can go to. So that's another huge one. Um, my dad came here with eight dollars in his pocket, and so you know, there, we definitely had not always lived a life where we could buy and get anything that we wanted. And so any cause around low income. Uh, for me still it's kids for the most part but you know giving people opportunities uh, where they don't have them right now and rewarding hard work Um, you know anything I can do in that space I try to do uh, whether it's offer people internships or myself to you know speaking at events where um, I'm there to motivate and inspire them to kind of think about these fields all of those are are things that I love doing and I definitely make time to do
1: I love that and your parents must be so proud of you now
0: (laughs) yeah they are. they're they're great. I mean, they came they came to the TEDx talk, and my my older son did too. And I think that was the first time they kind of really got how passionate I was around this. Yeah. Um, you know, until then, it, but I weave the whole story of them and my upbringing and kind of where I am into that talk. And I think it was the first time they like really, really got it that in the book
1: love that before we end anything else that you want to share with us uh maybe advice for others who are on that threshold of maybe thinking of starting their own business
0: um i would say that that advice is um really take the time to know what you're great at uh and especially to my lovely awesome female counterparts here really make sure you know this is what makes me amazing you know this is my top one percent nobody in the world has this combination of x y and z honestly it's just me and really having that confidence around what makes you special and then sticking to that and trying to to make sure that your job description always aligns to the stuff that you're great at Uh, because it's going to be really easy early on to get lost and to feel like you have to do everything and that most of the stuff that you do you're not great at you know, every day, remind yourself of the stuff that makes you amazing and have the confidence to say, no, this is, this is pretty much my shit. Like this is what, I, this is great. And this is what I do. And then as quickly as possible, get your job to be just that. Well,
1: thank you so much. Um, I'm so impressed with what you've built and, and you're, you're still just getting started. So I <laughs> you. <laughs> <Damn. laughs> I hope I am. Yes,
0: absolutely. Thank you. This was
1: really fun. Yeah, it's fun for us also and, and an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, we will have detailed show notes with links to everything we talked about at IWantOurJob.com. If you have ideas for future guests or topics, you can send us an email to podcast and IWantOurJob.com and we would love if you could leave us a review on iTunes so others can find the show. And you can sign up for a newsletter at Iwantourjob.com for updates. Until next time.